You're listening to The Togetherings, hosted by the Alaska Humanities Forum. The Togetherings are recorded conversations with Alaskans from all walks of life, sharing their perspectives on big questions that touch us all. Each series shares a common theme that is explored across episodes. Hello and welcome to The Togetherings, hosted by the Alaska Humanities Forum. This is Simonetta, I'm co-hosting this episode with Anne Hillman, representing Mental Health Mosaics, an arts and journalism project about North, our partners for this conversation series on supporting mental health. Hi, Anne. Hi. This is the third conversation of this series about supporting mental health, and today we're going to talk about supporting mental health as a community. And before we start, we want to acknowledge that we are recording these conversations in Anchorage, Alaska, on the Naina land. To join us for this conversation, we have Ziona Brownlow and Julia Terry. Ziona, would you tell us one or two things that you think are important for people to know about who you are? So um, I'm Ziona Brownlow. I use she, her pronouns. Um, I'm born and raised here in Anchorage, Alaska, um, where I've spent about the last five years um, in my career in social services. And most of that career really is rooted in um, a personal passion and need, I guess, for resources. And so um, I, I'm really excited to have this conversation with you all today so we can talk about like how communities really have an opportunity to, as an individual, as groups, and as a collective um, to support mental health care. Awesome. Thank you. What about you, Julia? Well, I'm Julia Terry. I use they, them pronouns. Um, I was born in Fairbanks and then raised on Yupik land in Newtok, Alaska, and then on Lower Tanana Dene land back in Fairbanks. I've been living in Anchorage for, oh, I think eight years this time around. Um, I'm a queer person who also works in social services. And um, I think that all of the things that I do in life are really tied into that passion um, that Ziana was talking about. I really care about my community and I care about um, being focused on wellness with one another and making sure that everybody has access to the things that they need in order to thrive and feel joy. And I'm really happy to be here with you all. Well, thanks for being here. And you both touched a little bit on that already, but we usually start by asking, what's your connection or experience uh, with the topic that we're going to we're exploring today, supporting mental health as a community? Um, whoever wants to start. Um, I guess we'll just you know, keep going in this pattern. I, um, I feel like my, my passion as far as like mental health and behavioral health care um, and, and just access and knowledge and stigma, it really did start um, at a young age. Uh, my, my mom um, is a mental health stress beneficiary. And um, that was something that I, that was very like significant in my childhood. And so um, growing up, uh, I, I kind of just had this relationship and this view of the world and mental illness and addiction and um, things that were almost like taboo to talk about um, in a way that was almost like so uh, embraced. Like it was just kind of very normal for me in my life. And so um, as a young adult being in this field as a career and bringing that personal connection and seeing how um, 
there's opportunities in the system or opportunities in some agencies or even just opportunities in the way that I was living to kind of like consider more people or to do things differently. Um, and so it really did start with just that early childhood experience and then stem into actually like a career field for me. I love that. I think that I have a really similar experience in that. Um, I think that my value systems are really rooted in my childhood and in the people who raised me up, um, both in the village that I grew up in and then again in Fairbanks. And I think that um, some of the big things are uh, really centered on we have everything that we need when we have each other and that um, it's helpful to share your load with other people to carry it because otherwise it gets really burdensome. Um, And I think, you know, I tell people that I was a social worker long before I ever got any letters after my name. And I probably will always be a social worker, no matter what I'm being paid to do, because I think that um, the really cool thing about this work that I now get paid to do is that it allows me to live into all of those value systems that, um, that I've been surrounded with. I'm also a person who has experienced a lot of mental wellness barriers growing up in Alaska. Um, I'm a person who is a like multi-person suicide survivor. Um, I worked as a bereavement professional for a long time and I helped to run the forget me not bereavement program, um, that was based here in Anchorage, but also ran the camp Aaron program that served young people all over the state who had experienced death loss. And I think that one of the things that's been significant to me, um, through all of the years that I've lived in Alaska is how much we hold in our communities, um, generational trauma, and then also the lived experience of being surrounded by people who have similar experiences and not always a lot of buckets to hold it in. Um, I think I answered the question. (laughs) Did I? (laughs) Thank you both definitely answered the question. And I, I feel like, um, I feel that kind of like a similar thread in in what you're both saying is that your experiences, especially around mental health, weren't these individual things and they weren't just about your personal experiences, but they were about your whole family or about your whole community. Um, and I wonder how that shapes how you define mental health or mental wellness, both in your experience and as a community experience. I really appreciate that question. Wow. Yeah. Wow. I mean, I think um, wellness, especially um, especially like mental health care, right? We can we can say that that is so many things. And um, for example, one of the first places that I um, got to like step foot in my career was at uh, the Alaska Psychiatric Institute. And so, again, in the name, we're talking about psychiatric wellness. Um, and a lot of things took place there that I, I might not have defined as wellness or care. And that was what that system and that mechanism was built to do. And so um, I think in the other end of that spectrum and extreme, we see like healthcare not being accessible, maybe necessarily in a traditional form through clinical arenas, but um we see a lot of peer work going on in our community right now. And I think that sometimes because of the stigma around having lived experience or maybe um, what those experiences come with, that that's not necessarily looked at as um, 
as such as such a dire resource as it is, right? And so both of these things are healthcare resources. Both of these things are mechanisms to wellness. But I think the biggest difference is the sense of community that comes with peer work, that comes with, um, and not to say that <clears throat> API or you know industrial institutions um, don't have people there that have the best intentions and that aren't you know coming with lived experience, but and there's also this benefit of having somebody who is like, I am on this path with you. Like we are here together. Yeah. I, that's really beautiful. I love um, listening to you speak on that. I think I'm going to just sort of bounce off of that and say, I think that wellness is a really holistic thing that it's about, you know, our access to resource, which ebbs and flows. Um, it's about the uh, ways that we're able to show up authentically in the world. Um, it's about being able to be messy and complicated humans and um, still sort of like not just survive that moment, though sometimes it is just about surviving that one moment, um, but to move past that together uh, into whatever the next brighter existence is. And um, I, you know, I just, uh, came from a peer support space myself as a person that's in recovery. Um, I don't participate in peer space very frequently because I also really desire peer space that's reflective of my whole self. And that means, um, LGBTQ plus space that honors all of my lived experience as a formerly houseless person, as a person that engaged with substance misuse in my youth, you know, I want to be someplace where I can be my whole person. Um, and what I think I've been seeing in recent years, um, and probably it's been happening in Alaska for a long time, but I just didn't know how to access it, is more and more of that space being created, people looking around, and especially younger people, um, I spend a lot of my time with people that are under 30, mostly people under 25, and I'm getting ready to turn 45 this year myself. And I just love looking to young leaders and following where they go, because what they're doing is they're seeing these gaps and they're saying, we know how to do this. We're going to have, uh, you know, we're going to have a field day and it's going to be a sober event and it's going to get us <laughs> together. And we're going to, you know, we're going to celebrate that we have made it through I don't know, this pandemic and that we are in community with one another and we're going to share resource. And I love that. I find it really inspiring. Um, also, I think that wellness is a, uh, it's a journey, right? And that it's okay that it's a journey and that sometimes we're in spaces that feel more well than others <laughs> because we'll find our way back there again. And so thinking about this wellness space, um, thinking about it in terms of peers and thinking about it in terms of just community support. So maybe people who aren't, wouldn't even consider themselves peers, but there are other members of the community. I know that both of you are really intrinsically involved with efforts um, towards mutual aid. And I would love it if one of you could explain what that term means, because it's not always well understood. Um, and then also kind of how in the world that idea relates back to this whole connection of, of mental wellness and health that we've been talking about. And I feel like, Julia, if, if you want to start with just the definition of, of mutual aid, um, I, I'm sure like you and the network have that down packed. Um, if I were to say anything as far as like what mutual aid is to me, um, I think in itself, it's, you know, that 
that kind of motto of it, you today, me tomorrow. Like I am extending, extending whatever abundance that I have because it might be you in need today, but it could be me tomorrow. And acknowledging that um, this collective is all experiencing something um, in whatever unique way that is, like mutual aid is, is, a, is, is like, I see that. And if you need something, I have that for you. And I know that you have me if I need something. Yeah, that's, I mean, I think that that's exactly it. I think that the, um, the phrase mutual aid has become more prolific and more formalized just in recent years. And um, when it's used sort of publicly, it's often about um, sort of a structure of volunteers who are engaged in a reciprocal exchange of services and goods and resource. And that resource might be time, like you hear mutual aid and time banking sometimes. But when it comes down to it, it's just what Sayana is saying about um, being in community and everybody having a gift to bring and a gift to receive. And I think it's the, the gift to receive part that sometimes people really struggle with because um, I think maybe this is me just like really believing in the goodness of people. I think that we all want to be givers and we sometimes have a hard time being receivers or asking for help. Mutual aid dismantles or at least begins dismantling some of that hierarchy between who has and who has not. And the other thing is, is dynamic. It can really um, be structured to fit the kinds of community that you live in, right? So in small communities, um, that maybe our off-road system, fly-out communities, mutual aid is subsistence lifestyle. It's, you know, taking the plentitude and then redistributing it amongst all of the people so that everybody has enough. And in then urban communities, it might be um, looking within your small neighborhood pod and finding out like who has the least access to resource and how can those of you who have more access to resource um, bring it to them? That makes sense. Yeah. Well, I loved how, Ziona, you said some something to the effect of basically like seeing each other, like you're seeing each other's needs, you're seeing each other for what you bring, you're seeing each other, I don't know, as as whole people. And, and then what uh, you yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I think in a world that is honestly rooted in colonialism and white supremacy like being being anything that is yourself and that is you know the not the norm and like breaking out of that mold like that's so rebellious so if mutual aid is I see you as your whole self and that's awesome and whatever you need to continue to do that however I can amplify that like what a rebellious act I love the beauty of seeing of seeing each other and helping each other is this rebellious act. And and I also love like Julia, how you connected it back to like what we term as subsistence lifestyle, which is, you know, a term that we need to question in and of itself. But like people have always been doing that. People have always been supporting each other in communities. I feel like sometimes mutual aid is just a name for it, just to help organize. Yeah, I think I think that might be true. <laughs> people people need a thing where they can sort of say like um, these people share my core value systems, and maybe that phrase mutual aid is a a signal that maybe people share your same value system. I don't always find that to be true. My first um, 
formalized forays into mutual aid were in the 80s, um, getting involved with an organization called Food Not Bombs, where what we would do is we would redistribute um, food waste from food waste, air quote, right, from restaurants and grocery stores and that sort of thing and create movable feasts for our houseless relatives and for ourselves too, right? The whole goal behind Food Not Bombs is making sure that people have access to food, but also that people have access to loving, beloved community. So mm-hmm. being there and, um, and communing together. And what I found in that venue was a lot of, you know, radical anarchist, queer punk people. So they were my people, in fact. Um, But what I've found as I've gotten older and engaged in different mutual aid networks, that's not always the case. And sometimes we have to have some really serious conversations about what does it mean to um, dismantle the impacts of white supremacy in the ways that we are sharing and caring for one another, right? And, um, And some groups thrive on that discomfort of learning together and some groups fall apart. Um, but at the end of the day, it's sort of like, what are, what, what is it that we're trying to accomplish together? And I think the thing that we're trying to accomplish together is that beloved community. Julie, I really like also what you said about mutual aid being a form of, uh, dismantling the hierarchies between who has and who hasn't, who has and who hasn't. And then now you just mentioned like you being part of um, certain like scenes and that that for me like in a way just feels like commu- like those scenes are a community and they just like it's basically what you said like it's an act of resistance in some way it's a, it's a revolution and I don't have a clear question but I just uh, I'm fascinated by that. I think it's important, and I wonder if you, yeah, if you if you if you feel like there is a space for that here in Anchorage, and and how is it like? Yeah, I think there's a space for that. I'm I I have a thought, and then I'll pass it over to um, Sayana. To I'm really curious to hear what you have to say about this. Um, part of the radical act of engaging in community care and mutual aid together is saying that all of these broken systems around us um, maybe are just not repairable and that it's okay to sort of move to the side of them and figure out a way to um, build that community together and care for one another, um, co-creating the world that we wanna be in right now, instead of perpetuating the harms that um, we've already been persisting in. That's sort of what you made me think of when you were um, reflecting on what we were sharing. But Zayana, what what do you think? Do you think that there's space in our communities um, to, to build that together? Absolutely. And I think um, a, a community fridge is a very good example. Um, there there is so much opportunity here because we are very much so though like people have been here for a millennia as far as like what what ordinances and laws we are governed by as a state we're very new 
which means that there's a lot of opportunity for us to still make political changes and to really inform policy in ways that we haven't before. Um, and, and when I bring up the community fridge, um, the reason why I, I say this is a great example, because food sharing has been a form of mutual aid that has been going on for years internationally, um, but let alone like across the nation, especially for like the last 20 years and once the pandemic happened it just community fridges just kind of popped up everywhere like as as art installments as as extensions of food banks during um you know social distancing measures and so I think um for an example here we don't have any um real federal like guidelines around community fridges but um we also didn't actually have any any ordinances or any municipal laws that really guided um, what we could do at Food for Thought for the Community Fridge Project, aside from a food bank. And the reason why I feel like this is so significant is because now we're talking about the difference between mutual aid and charity. We're talking about the difference between a revolutionary act and participating in a capitalist system. And while a nonprofit is still doing good things, it is a nonprofit organization that is a part of a capitalist system. And a mutual aid organization is a part of a community. It belongs to nobody aside from the people that are participating in it, which should be anybody who is interested, right? Should be anybody who's willing. And so I think when we talk about, um, is there room for this in Anchorage? I think there's plenty of room. I think we're, we're desperate for it because we have a community who is so loudly telling us that this system is not meeting our needs. Mm-hmm. One in six people are hungry in this state. Our housing need has almost doubled. Like it is, it is so significant the need for like mental health care, especially just clinical mental health care. Like the need is is abundant. And our system is operating in a way that isn't acknowledging it or is acknowledging it and not providing a resolution. And, and there is also an opportunity for us to, um, you know, build community resolutions And I think, unfortunately, part of that also comes with having to, like, pave the way through a lot of red tape, Um, at least at least when we talk about like food access and and some of those things. And so I think that's part of the revolution that maybe isn't pretty or isn't fun. Right. Like we can't really you don't want to post that on Instagram. Right. (laughs) But it's important. And it's it's kind of those first steps to to build the foundation. So then we can have the programs we can we can um, organize and and also kind of in a way show this this structure, this government structure, how it should be done. So those are my thoughts on that. Can I bounce off of that for a second, Anne? Yeah, (laughs) yeah, definitely. And I just had a question. She made me think of lots of things. Yeah. I I don't want to interrupt your question. I can hold my thought. No? Okay. Um, Yeah, I was just thinking like people. So I I believe that it is a basic right to have access to um, enough food that you no longer feel hungry, enough rest that you no longer feel tired. Uh, not just shelter, but a place where you feel a sense of belonging and home, right? And 
um, access to community that holds you as your whole self. And I think one of the cool things about a community fridge project, but also about mutual aid sort of in general, is this ability to sort of share of ourselves as well, right? Food is this really awesome way of saying, let me tell you a little bit about me and about the lived experience that I've had. Let's um, let's share this resource together. Let me teach you something. Let me learn something from you. And, um, you know, I do food redistribution all of the time, just in my spare time, usually with my uh, 10 year old. And one of the things that I find is that it's really important to ask every single person that you go past whether they'd like to eat with you, because we don't know what hunger looks like. You know, we sort of have this social perspective of what hunger looks like. Um, but as you were saying, Zayana, uh, we we have a huge issue around food access in this state and being able to sort of break that down and say, like, let's just commune together means that we can move towards a space where we can dream together, too. Right. Um, I'm really curious about what Anne's question is now. <laughs> well, but you I think you might have sort of answered it because I'm curious as to how if you're doing something like a community fridge, which is like a public access, everyone can access this refrigerator with food in it that is ready to eat or easy to eat, but people are putting food in there, but they're not necessarily seeing who's picking up the food. How does that differ from a charity or from like, how does that, yeah, how is that different? I think primarily in the organizational structure, right? A charity, um, a charity just in the mechanism itself is determining who is in need, mm. who qualifies for for this event. What are we willing to give, right? And and like Julia said, this this community fridge project and, and how it's been operating in so many really great other places um, is really truly just asking the community what is it that you need. And in so many different ways, I, whether that's whether that's hearing and from you know there's more moms and they need you know kiddo to go packs whatever, um, or whether that's hearing like we want condiments like I can make my own meals I just need condiments right like these are things that as as a charity and some of the traditional structures of food distribution um, that that are traditionally rooted in control um, it, it it is in a way only giving you sometimes the bare minimum. And it's oftentimes not really meeting the true need. As a person, I might be showing up as a person who's hungry, which as the charity's role or as the food bank's role is I'm providing food. And so now I've checked my box, I've provided food, um, but I'm showing up as a whole person. I might be an unhoused person and I don't have a way to cook this meal. Or I might be um, a person who has, who's experiencing a physical disability and I can't carry this 30 pound box. There's these other pieces that come with mutual aid and community and getting food that address those whole person needs. And that's the difference between a charity and a structure that is limited to their mission and vision. Mm -hmm. and, and, for, and for reasons that are understandable, because that's the structure that they're operating in. And that's the difference between that and a mutual aid organization, which is a community um, addressing whole people needs, because we are whole people who 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 are also showing up like like that's a part of of my need as a person mm -hmm. is to be able to see my community is to be able to to like fill that cup of mind that wants that wants to help and wants to see people get those needs met or wants to see people be seen see access right 
And so I think like that's that's really the biggest difference. I might be able to go to a food bank and volunteer and I get to, you know, have this time where I'm participating in this organization and then leave and pat myself on the back. And I don't get to see where that food goes. Um, and for example, at the community fridge, you might not be able to see immediately where that food goes, but, you know, I, I'm excited to be able to to launch this project and to be able to share stories as they come, because I think that's so much a part of culturally um, our values around food and just what comes with the experience is, is sharing story. Um, and so, yeah, that's, that's at least the value for me. I love all of that. I want to say too, that um, a community fridge doesn't limit who can contribute. Right. And I'm mm -hmm. just thinking about how, like, I've got outside of my home, um, we've got one of those little free libraries that also doubles as a little free food pantry and anybody in our neighborhood can contribute and everybody in our neighborhood does, including many of our houseless relatives that live in camps right here um, next to my house and down the way in the woods, right? Because people have things to contribute regardless of what their circumstance is. And I think that that is really empowering to know that I'm contributing, you know, as a formerly houseless person, um, I know that I'm contributing back to my community in ways that I would have wanted during my times of need. And that also when I once again need, which I probably will at some point in the future, my, my community will hold me up, right? Um, charities, to me, charities, uh, also regulate who can contribute to the charity to a certain extent, because people who contribute to charities tend to be, not always, but tend to be people who feel like they have a largesse to give and feel is the operative word there, because probably we all are full of some kinds of plentitudes. They just don't look the same for every single person. Um, I love when I go out to my free food pantry here and I see what neighborhood people have put in there. I love when kids in, in the neighborhood put in like a half open pack of gum and that sort of thing, because, you know, you're contributing, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, a lot of the processes that are within these these organizations operating within the structure, um, they do limit like what can be donated, who can volunteer. Um, and a lot of times, some of this food um, that has to go through this process um, of sorting and filtering, it oftentimes is still edible, but it's not meeting um, maybe a criteria that as a, as a corporate agency should pass for liability, right? And, and in a sense of community, like, I'm, I might still pick up that, that half pack of gum. I don't know where it's been. There's still a liability there. But because there's this sense of community and this understanding, there's trust that, you know, this, this gum isn't going to, to, you know, to hurt me, right? This, like, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful for receiving this gum and it's still something that I would receive. It's maybe not a, a full pack of gum I would have bought at the grocery store because they, you know, they have reasons and policies and everything, but that's where community can kind of be the difference. And I think there's even an opportunity to almost like do more because of that. And I love what you just said about building trust, like at how it how it builds trust between the people. And even if you don't see the person who puts it in there, like, you know, OK, someone in my community loves to cook, you know, whatever it is, and they're here to share it. And, and kind of what you were talking about before with it being like. 
messages. Like you're sending a message through the food you're creating and the love that you're putting into the food. But like, I mean, in some ways you could even be super literal and leave messages for people and just notes of affection and, and sharing who you are through this unregulated space that isn't reliant on grants, that isn't reliant on, you know, the rules associated with federal food subsidy boxes. Um, and it's a beautiful thing. And I was going to say that often processes and projects that are self-organized, build bottom-up, are the ones that last longer because they're like true and less bureaucratic and they have the power to change the social fabric and for real. And, you know, we've seen that with many, many projects that are built that way. Um, I was wondering, uh, since we, we've been talking about food for a while, which is obviously central, super relevant, I was, I'm curious to ask you what else is needed in order to support mental health or wholesome uh, health as a community? Mm -hmm. What else uh, comes to mind? You know, I really want to talk about hosting because um, I think that it's so funny to me, right? I, for my paid work, I work for Choosing Our Roots, which is a um, volunteer collective that is also a nonprofit, um, which, you know, is sort of the burden of being part of a capitalist society right now is that we had to do those kinds of things. But everybody deserves access to housing. And um, when I was a young person, and I was experiencing housing instability. Um, multiple people's families took me in and gave me a safe, stable place to be so that I could do things like have a job and go to school and, you know, continue to sort of like follow the path that I wanted to follow. And they didn't do that because they had to. And they didn't do that because um, they were receiving like big bucks. <laughs> they weren't. <laughs> they were receiving me and I was kind of an ob obnoxious teenager. Um but I think that systems look at this idea of inviting a stranger who needs shelter into your home as just the weirdest, most radical thing in the whole world. And I don't really think that it is. I think that it's revisiting some of the ways that we, um, you know, depending on the culture that you grew up in, the, the ways that we already know how to care for one another within multi-generational, multi-family households, being able to say like, I live in a space that's got um, like an extra bedroom. So why not offer that extra space to another person, right? How can I do that in a way that feels reciprocal and safe and doesn't feel like charity? Because I think that that's important that people feel like they're still contributing to the thing that they're receiving. Um, I think that if we all opened up our spaces to the unstably housed and houseless people in our communities, that we would be able to address this issue of homelessness pretty much overnight. And opening up your space doesn't necessarily mean opening up a room in your home, right? Which is the thing that I invite people to do with LGBTQ plus young people. 
but it might be something like I have this dream of buying the lot that is next to ours and just putting up a bunch of tiny homes and building a big fire pit and, you know, putting in a washateria area and all of those things. And I want to be really clear about this point for free for people to stay in. I don't want to be a landlord. I want to say like, this is for you because everybody deserves to have a roof over their head. And why not share this space that we have? Let's garden together. Let's have a fire together. Let's hang out together. Right. And along with that comes all of the other wraparounds of community resource because being in community and being seen as a person that has dignity inherently is so important to the stability and well-being of all people, regardless of their circumstance. Those are some of my thoughts. I, I Julie, I really appreciated um, how you touched on just like using community to access these these resources. And I feel like we've been talking about that. I mean, mostly this this whole entire conversation. And I guess as far as as what else we need, like it's access. And, and unfortunately that access usually is only driven by like data, um, which means you have to have visibility to have access. Right. And so in a world that is trying very hard to not see so many people and so many like beautiful, different, unique walks of life, um, and experiences that, that I think that often feels like the biggest uphill battle it, like it's not necessarily that we don't have enough resources in Anchorage. Like granted, we have a housing availability market of like 2% right now, but per capita, we have a lot of resources compared to, to our other friends in the lower 48. And so what our biggest hurdle that I see in our community is, is access. There's so much advocacy that's needed just to get somebody through the front door that by the time they get there, everybody is exhausted. And so when it comes to wellness, we have a community that, like, we have a community that um, is, has had so many experiences um, that we have a, a, a state mental health trust that generates revenue. So it's, it's like we've acknowledged it and we still have systems and forms and things that are, are done in a way that don't necessarily accommodate folks with disabilities that don't necessarily accommodate folks who um are are transportation insecure that are or possibly like you know unhoused and just are going through it and so we end up having to fill those gaps with community and I think that at a certain point there is a shared responsibility on the system on our municipality on our state on our on our nation to also kind of meet us halfway. So I feel like when we talk about access um, to resources, it's it's not just that person and their motivation to access the resource. I think it's also the shared responsibility of the agency to be accessible. I really agree with that. I think that we hear a lot in um, the circles that I live and play in that relationship is the intervention. And I think that we often think about relationship as being interpersonal, just, you know, one person or a handful of people with one another, but it's also about systems and how systems are in relationship with one another and with their communities. And 
where they are looking at um, like how to undo barriers that currently exist and where they are looking at um, how to really listen to the people that are experiencing those systems. And I, I think that, you know, when I was a person who was needing access to a lot of resources, I often felt really tokenized as a person who was capable of articulating my need. Um, I was sort of held up as the, the good representative of whatever that need happens to be. And I think that part of the way that we invite people into accountability and systems into accountability is making sure that we're not looking for just the easy answer there. We're looking for, you know, the people who are showing up just as they are in that moment and having the system say, we're still inaccessible to you. So how do we make ourselves more accessible? Um, and I don't pretend to have any of the answers to that at all, but I have the energy to keep on trying to find those answers. I love that. I love that you have the energy to keep searching for those answers. I might have been lying a little bit, but I will find the energy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I think that's so true. Like in, especially in a community that um, we we are so diverse in experiences and in culture, and we um, we are often proud of that in many ways. And sometimes in ways that are very performative, um, and and I think that we we embrace the expansive community that we have um, without actually giving it what it needs. Like we embrace it when we need grants and when we, um, yeah, when we need grants, when we need funding, and when when there's an opportunity um, for it to be looked at in a certain light, but. But these experiences and these cultures come with whole people. And if if any, if there's any takeaway from today's conversation, I think it's that, right? Like mental health care, wellness is is a whole person thing. And and I know within my my own experience, my own wellness, like there are so many identities that I have in this community. And all of them deserve to be seen in their own ways and all of them deserve to be safe here. And I think we have um, a lot of people who would agree with me that in a lot of ways that our community um, is prepared to like open an opportunity to talk about really hard things, um, but there's not actually access to like what we need after that, right? Especially like we've been hosting a lot of really awesome conversations about equity and diversity and inclusion in our community and there there aren't a lot of like peer support rooms um I feel like groups here um that at least some that I feel comfortable with like I don't necessarily have a group a peer group that I feel that reflects all of myself but I have so many that might reflect my individual identities right and so if anything I feel like as a community we definitely have room to grow in that area and and I hope that that trickles into like some of these more like systemic visibilities I really like what you're saying there. It's bringing to mind a couple of different things that I was thinking about earlier today around, you know, our environment and being immersed in 
um, white supremacy and the impacts of white supremacy and being immersed in transphobia and hom homophobia and those impacts on a daily basis. And I was in a meeting earlier today and I said that I feel like for um, you know, 20 years now, I've been saying we need to do a better job of gathering data around sexual orientation and gender identity. And every time I say something like that, I feel like there's a lot of um, maybe dismissiveness around why would why would we want to gather data around such a small segment of the population? And the thing that I said in the meeting that I was at today is that everybody has a sexual orientation and everybody has a gender identity. So when we're gathering that data, we're talking about all of us. Um, but the reason that it made me think about that, um, Sayana, is that I think that we really do have a dearth of affinity spaces where people can be their whole selves. And when I think about things like um, equity, specifically as it relates to race and culture, we have a real issue with anti-Black racism in Alaska, and there are very few spaces where um, people of color can commune together without white gaze, really. And I think that those being able to foster those spaces within your own communities and being able to learn together from all of the things that um, make us so incredible and different and valuable, it's really important. Um, I know that in the years that I've been back here, I have felt like I am continually co-creating the community that I need to be in, because if I didn't, I would be completely alone. And that's hard. Powerful words. Um, we're getting close to the end of this episode today. So I wanna take, uh, it's, it's great that uh, what you're saying, and it's been great, like, uh, having you here and um, usually we we close by asking our guests to um, think of a question that you like to leave our listeners with it's a good one <laughs> I like what you did there you can also feel free to pass <laughs> Um, I mean, yeah, I guess I would just challenge people to like the first, the first question that we kind of started this conversation with was sort of like, what is, what is mental wellness in, in our community? And I feel like I would challenge people to ask themselves that very same question. Like, again, we've covered that, you know, the wellness and, and community can be so many different things, whether that is. Uh, uh, within a state regulated institution or whether that's within um, our own grassroots peer communities. And I think the more that we think about what that is and what that looks like, the more that we are, can be intentional about making, making those changes in our own lives, in our workspaces, in, in our structures um, to actually accommodate wellness in our communities. Yeah, this is a, I'm, I'm not very good at um, thinking on the spot. <laughs> so I'll just share the thing that I try to think about um, every day when I wake up, because, you know, I wake up in the morning and I have my fingers crossed that capitalism has collapsed and then I am often disappointed. And so I uh, start my day with saying, what do I need and what can I give? 
And then I try to end my day with, was I able to get what I needed? And was I able to give what I thought I had to give or did I give something else? Um, and I think that my, my nesting partner is really the person who reminds me that um, my deepest core value is of being of service to the world. And that I need to remember that it is okay to also have the world be of service to me. <laughs> That's an uncomfortable growing edge for me. So I don't think we're alone, even when we feel that we're alone. Um, and that's one way of making sure that we remember it every day.